From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. People who are inclined or vulnerable to mental illnesses of various sorts know how important language is and how certain words can really open up deep wounds. And so I want to both look, you know, with unflinching honesty at the anxious, tormented aspects of white evangelicalism and particularly its psychological shape and its fear. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Charles Marsh. He's a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and director of the Project on Lived Theology. He's the author of many books, including God's Long Summer, which won the 1998 Grauenmeyer Award in Religion, and the acclaimed biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Strange Glory, a Penn Award finalist. He's also the recipient of awards from the Guggenheim Foundation, the American Academy in Berlin, and the Lilly Endowment. Today we're talking about his recent memoir, Evangelical Anxiety. Professor Charles Marsh, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure being here. I've been a fan of your show for quite a while. Honored to finally be a guest. Thank you so much. And I want to dig into this book because I am not sure what I was expecting when I first cracked the cover on this, because there are a couple of things going on just on that cover. First of all, there's a picture of you, but in a kind of Peter Gabriel's third or fourth album style, your face has been erased and smudged out. And so there's this blotch where a face should be. And then we get these two words juxtaposed one to the other, evangelical and anxiety. And before we begin digging into the meat of the book, I'd like to start there. If you'd be willing to explain to my listeners when they encounter this cover, what you hope you are doing either in orienting them or disorienting them towards what is to come within the pages. Thank you. Yeah, we worked a long time on that cover and went through, I would say, no fewer than 50 designs. I discovered a really interesting photo study by a New York-based photographer on anxiety. There was one in which in the self-study, his head is exploding with these ribbons and patterns in a, a way that I thought captured the anxious mind. And so we played with some images of my headshot to achieve that effect. And I think that signals already that this is not a self-help book. It's not a how-to manual. And it's not a book that at least initially offers a set of guidelines are pastoral words, edifying words, comfortable words to bring the anxious evangelicals back to a sense of 
the calming uh, presence of, of God. It's meant to, first and foremost, to, to sort of represent a subculture. It's my own story. It's my own particular journey. It is one that would not be at all unfamiliar to evangelicals of my generation and even recent ones. What is evangelical anxiety? It is an anxiety that is born of this weight, the heaviness, the feeling called to the kind of world apocalypse, you know, messianic summons of the Christian God refracted through the practices of white evangelicalism. It's both a, a kind of uh, unbridled narcissism, but it's also a terror. And the terror is configured around this sense of specialness that the Christian feels having been chosen by God to serve on the front lines of the great cultural and cosmic struggles against the children of darkness. We are the last remnants of Christian civilization in the kind of evening land of our nation and world. Every moment is fraught, overcharged with meaning. And I don't think that true reckoning with the pathologies and the harmful practices of evangelicalism in this country, white evangelicalism in particular, can lead to meaningful and redemptive repentance-born transformation until, until looking at the ways in which so many of these ideas, ideals, convictions, both disfigure the interior life, but also direct us in the social order in ways that can be toxic and that can lead to campaigns and movements that seek to obliterate difference and disagreement. So I'd like to say this too, and this is a long answer, but I'll just say this before we move on. I hope to have written a book that has a kind of gentleness and humor and artfulness in its unfolding. I never thought I would be writing a book in the genre of neurotica. I, I don't enjoy reading particularly books about mental health and mental illness. I find that often such books, memoirs in particular, are written with a kind of a bravado, you know, a sense of, I am so messed up, you wouldn't believe. And by the time you finish this book, you're going to be there with me and admire there's also sometimes an insensitivity to language. People who are inclined or vulnerable to mental illnesses of various sorts know how important language is and how certain words, and particularly true within evangelical cultures, can really open up deep wounds. And so I want to both look, you know, with unflinching honesty at the, the anxious tormented aspects of white evangelicalism and particularly its psychological shape and its fear, if you will, 
its fear of the psyche, but I wanted to do it in a way that creates a kind of trust with the reader. So I wanted to signal early on in the memoir that some pretty brutal scenes are coming, but I'm going to be okay. And you can borrow hope from me if you need. And, and this journey will take courage. And it, there will be some times when we wonder if there's even any reason to keep our hope in the risen Christ. That's the kind of axis on which our lives and our imaginations turn. But I'll say, yes, we will get there. And I just hope that kind of gentleness and trust comes through as well. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Charles Marsh. He's a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and director of the Project on Lived Theology. We're talking today about his recent book, Evangelical Anxiety, a Memoir. Well, in that answer, you gave us a lot of pieces that I'm going to be digging into as we continue our conversation. One thing that really rang out to me was that you were not interested in creating a kind of spectacle or centerpiece of your anxiety or the breakdown that really is a lodestone moment here. What intrigued me in reading your book, Evangelical Anxiety, was actually how little there was of that. It shows up as a lightning strike moment and a lightning strike moment, and otherwise it's just gray clouds in the distance, a sort of squall line that's always there but is not necessarily always fully present. And as I tell you about my experience of reading the book, and frankly that surprised me, I'm wondering, am I reading the book in the way that you really hoped a reader would, where we're not centering that kind of anxious narrative, but rather it's more sort of a specter in the background? I am deeply gratified by your reading the memoir in that fashion. That's so very helpful and encouraging. That episode of the breakdown in divinity school that you mentioned was at times much longer and that other drafts shorter. In some drafts, it was the fourth or fifth chapter. It, it did seem in the end, that, that it needed to come early in the book, but it didn't need to be the first thing. So, in fact, the first scene is a kind of humorous, darkly, so 500-word episode involving a worship service at kind of a contemporary church and the feeling triggered by the sermon and rushing home to have my little personal communion with a five milligram lorazepam in front of my mirror at the house. And I think that is, David, the way you just framed this, exactly the way I wanted that primal scene, if you will, to stand in relation to the rest of the book. There is a lot in the rest of the narrative, and certainly in the, the 50 or 70 pages that follow, that kind of seeks to explicate that event or to pose that event as a question mark. You know, why did this aspiring evangelical theologian who was adhering to the tenets of 
evangelicalism, both in its kind of theological side, but also in its moral and, and sexual teachings as well, you get blindsided and undone by this acute anxiety episode, his first semester in divinity school, with all of the terrors and torments that brought with it. Why did this happen? I had lived and pursued this goal of being an evangelical thinker and using my gifts, whatever they were, in reading and writing and thinking, talking about ideas as a way to serve Christ, bearing witness in the, in the secular academy and the public square and these places where we were excluded and historically persecuted. Our persecution complex really has no limits and continues in all kinds of exotic forms to this day. But the promise was that I would prepare for this. I would dig deep in the word. I would arrange my priorities in ways that maximized my chance of conforming to the mind of Christ. I mean, I was taking on the mind of Christ with all of my kind of all of my energies and with my visions about my vocation. The opposite should happen, right? Instead, I was undone. And so the question is, why is there something similar, this kind of inevitable reckoning with the murky and messy and sinful and inescapably broken, morally ambiguous world, why does it always prove to be a kind of undoing to men and women who presume themselves to be pure of mind and heart? And, and then I just, at that point, I try to live into my Southern literary roots and tell interesting stories and develop a narrative that pulls the readers through that is haunted and that is never, never forgetful of that dark storm, but that does not luxuriate in that dark storm. As I think so many memoirs of this do, they're just, they're unrelenting. It's like we get it. You're depressed or anxious. I understand. But as a reader, I can only bear your sorrow and your suffering so much. I need to encounter the elements of writing and narrative that endear me to a text, you know, characters and stories and humor and the color of life. Well, and if I may, as we're moving towards our first break, it really strikes me that if I were to give a one-sentence logline for your book, Evangelical Anxiety, how I would characterize it is, this is Charles Marsh learning to fall in love again with his own body, learning to be at home in his own self. Now, these are my words, not yours, but when I say that to you, does that feel right, or would you say, no, the focus is really maybe somewhere else in summing up the grand sweep of this book? No, it's really... David, such a perceptive insight. It is the body that emerged for me in my evangelical pubescence with such alarm that had to be made an object of deep spiritual concern. And everything that I listened to in sermons and Bible studies 
in my daily devotionals in my King James Version Thompson Chain Reference Edition, said that my best way of navigating these very natural and beautiful changes was to distrust the mold to the point at which the body, my body, became not only a site of distrust, my genitalia became a place that was so overcharged with meaning as to almost form a kind of site of a, an ongoing and never-ending metaphysical struggle upon which everything depended. My inner integrity, my relationship with God, with my parents, with my friends. And that long journey was a journey to learn to love my body again, if not the first time, and in a way that, you know, now as a man in this early 60s and as a person who's read and taught theology most of his life, feels more aligned with great goodness of the creation story and the sacred character of the material and of the human. The incarnation, of course, is central narrative in which Christians form this, not just a trust in, a kind of deep commitment to the earthly and the material and the bodily. So while psychotherapy and psychoanalysis was very much a part of the methodology and the clinical sort of methodology that enabled me to kind of develop this new narrative, it really was about living more deeply and in a much more embodied way into the doctrine of creation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Charles Marsh. He's a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and director of the Project on Lived Theology. He's the author of many books, and today we're talking about his most recent called Evangelical Anxiety, a memoir. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're speaking with Charles Marsh. He's a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and director of the Project on Lived Theology. He's the author of many books, including God's Long Summer and his biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Strange Glory. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Evangelical Anxiety, a memoir. Well, in the first segment, you were talking about your upbringing and how a person with a certain evangelical worldview growing up was convinced that if they did everything right, if they kept themselves morally and physically pure, that they would have no anxiety and that nothing would go wrong. 
I was mindful as you were recounting that of the typology developed by Walter Brueggemann in his analysis of the Psalms, where he says some of the Psalms are about orientation, some are about disorientation, and some are about reorientation. Psalm 1 is a great example of orientation. If you live a moral life, God will bring you blessing and increase, and if you live an immoral life, God will strike you down and will cut you early and fast. And then disorientation reverses that and says, we did everything right, and yet we're being cut down early and fast. What is going on? So I'm hearing in your own description of your experience a kind of disorientation, and I'm wondering about the grounding of the reorientation. You've touched on this a little bit. You said some psychoanalysis, some therapy, but also I get a sense that in your book, Evangelical Anxiety, you're not going to put tremendous stock in these techniques to really deliver reorientation, and maybe it comes from somewhere else. But I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And it reminds me of how much I feel, having written this book, a desire to become a student of the Bible again. I know that sounds a bit dated. My biblical literacy which was considerable peaked when I was 12 years old. And I grew up just deeply immersed in kind of the biblical mythos or imaginary. I have memories of our first home in Mobile. My father was a Southern Baptist minister at a church there of blue-collar folks who worked in shipping and various aspects of industry related to the Bay and, and to military. And being called out at dinner parties from my room to tell stories of the Bible, which I would apparently deliver with great dramatic flair. And while my years in public schools in Mississippi, where we moved when I was 10 or 11, were not years, despite the fact that, you know, Mississippi is a little Ireland and um, it continues to produce just sort of a wildly, you know, disproportionate rate of some of the most talented writers in the world. And this keeps happening in the new generation as well. I don't recall having been assigned a novel or a book in the five years I was in public school in Mississippi, but I read the Bible deeply and immersively. I should also add that I was the sword drill champion of Jones County, Mississippi. I'm sure you have no idea what the sword drill is, but suffice it to say, yeah. Why don't, why don't you tell our listeners quickly what a sword drill is? Well, it's, it involves a group of children or young people in a friendly competition, though in the Deep South, I don't know that there's any competition that's friendly, standing in a line, seeing who can find a passage in the Bible the, the quickest. So the leader will say 2 Corinthians 5.10, and you take your Bible, your sword, the sword of the Lord, and you find the verse, and you open it, put your hand, and take a step forward. And so it doesn't signal theological sophistication or really anything about the knowledge of the text at hand, but you knew, I knew my way around Scripture, and I actually had vast passages recited that I still uh, use. But I feel like, you know, I, here's something I want to introduce that um, may give that little preamble some context. 
I do feel that part of the evangelical anxiety that I suffered and lived with and have tried to reckon with and to find a way out of has a traumatic form and that there are theological lessons that a very young child in this ethos learns compulsively that the psychic effects that one finds associated with trauma. So as I felt such brutal notions of an eternity in hell, part of my daily mental operations, along with this kind of overcharged desire to find God's word and eschatological meaning in, in every experience, that everydayness, the mundane, you know, are not parts of that evangelical cosmos, that the Bible and my relationship with the Bible and my trust of the Bible also suffered. And so I would say two things in response to the question, that the reorientation did require, without any reservation, the tools and gifts and skills of an empathetic and gifted psychiatrist or psychotherapist or psychoanalyst, as well as in important times, psychopharmacology. But unlike, say, Freud, Sigmund Freud's account of the way this is supposed to work as he fleshes it out in his little book, Future of an Illusion, the kind of confidence that this man or woman cured of his or her neurotic unhappiness in the analytic dialogue more broadly, more eclectically through the use of medications and the like, will then somehow emerge as a fully autonomous person, able to live in this new education to reality alone, reality which, of course, is governed by a scientific paradigm. Now, I think, first of all, those stereotypical historically accurate notions of the therapeutic work or dated ones and the field, not only psychotherapy and counseling and psychiatry, but psychoanalysis as well, filled with people of faith. And so there, there are really different ways of understanding the relationship between the difficult psychological work that you need in this reorientation and the difficult theological and spiritual work that you need. And for me, one of the, one of the sort of choice that was borne out was similar to the way that philosopher Paul Ricoeur, this really interesting book on Freud, that has a kind of Bartian kind of focus in its appreciation, but in its, its, sort of, its sort of theological overcoming, if you will, of some of the Freudian aporias in uh, its understanding of religion and Christianity in particular, that, that there is a place beyond the critical, you know, there's the naive, there's the critical, the naive is the state of mind in which we believe in these doctrines of the church and the mysteries and all of this with this kind of direct and literalistic kind of vigor. And then the critical, reflective, whether you're reading philosophy or in psychoanalysis, all of that becomes a kind of question that has to be understood with attention to the meaning of these doctrines of these ideas so they don't have the sort of 
their own intrinsic truthfulness, but they need to give way to expressions, uh, whether it's the infinite value of the human species or whether it's some kind of range of symptoms and their meanings. But there's also this post-critical moment, which I think Freud and, and mo most of the secular psychoanalysts and therapists completely miss. And, and, and in missing that, they, they also failed to kind of recognize the heuristic value of therapy to cleanse the psyche of false constructions of God, of idolatry, of images of God that have been formed around our cultural preferences and prejudices, around class and value. And so I think that I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen when I went into psychoanalysis, to use that example. But what of my theological thought, of my way of thinking about myself in the world in relationship to creation and others and, and life, and that the therapeutic and the theological have a mutually enriching kind of power and role in this reorientation process. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Charles Marsh. He's a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and director of the Project on Lived Theology. Today we're talking about his recent memoir, Evangelical Anxiety. I'm struck by what you just said about your reorientation process being a process that drives you back into the texts of the Bible, and you mentioned peaking in your reading of the Bible around when you were 12, but there's this point in your book, Evangelical Anxiety, where you are referencing a favorite volume of a theologian by the name of Karl Barth, and it's a book called The Word of God and the Word of Man. And I'm recalling that there's a, an essay in that book called The Strange New World That We Encounter in the Bible. And part of Barth's thesis there is that we are, we're constantly in tension, and he's certainly not the only one to bring out this idea, but we're in tension between trying to drag the Bible closer to the world that we know or allowing ourselves to be dragged more towards this alien, strange world that the Bible beckons us to. And I'm wondering, as we're talking about this process of reorientation, do you feel like you are being drawn more towards the legible, the familiar, the known in the shared world that we have, or do you feel like re reorientation is drawing you more towards something new and perhaps a little alien and perhaps wonderful in all senses of that word. Yes, I appreciate your mentioning Bard, Word of God, Word of Man. It's a book that I teach. It's a book that I come back to that is endlessly giving in its power and surprise and delight. And I think there is a, a very strong parallel between the God of Jesus Christ as so rendered in those essays and essays of that period, and the God that emerges in the course of therapeutic work that requires the disentangling of our image and images of God from their finite sorts of references that have emerged because of, you know, through family, through tradition, through culture. 
these essays are just like prose poems on speed of the God who comes to humanity from the far country, from the faraway country of the triune God who calls us into this strange new world, who stands over our finite loyalties and the, our unceasing production of false gods, both in judgment and in, and in grace. And this idea that the kinds of gods who we associate with distrust of the body, you know, suspicion of worldly love, suspicion of life and the rich richness of human experience, these become provide sort of finite ways of speaking about God. And all of those stunning passages we find in, in Barge that kind of express this, what you call this sense of newness and the sense of novelty. And I would say a sense of wonder and of a kind of reimagined mystery. I find that to be true of where I am today. And I do hope that these little vignettes that you find in evangelical anxiety, they're, the vignettes is a, a quaint word. They're more languorous dispatches from my ordinary going about things. That those are also seen as these little spaces of discovering mystery in the quotidian. And I think that it's difficult for someone who was born with all of these world-shaping mandates of the evangelical ethos to let go of that messianic impulse and just be present in a moment and trust, right? Trust God, trust yourself, trust the, the kind of languorous or it could be even chaotic or unexpected kind of activity of life. And all of that is about newness and mystery. And it's about a kind of living into our material and mortal lives. If I can pick up on something that you just said, and it's a word that has come up a couple of times in our conversation so far, it's this word quotidian gesturing towards the everyday, the ordinary. You have foregrounded in this book that you're a person who has lived most of your life with various forms of anxiety disorders. Longtime listeners to the show will know that I also am a person who lives with those realities. And it's been my experience that living with anxiety, living with depression, living with a non-neurotypical way of being in the world renders the everyday anything but everyday. So sometimes the ordinary can be extraordinary in its ability to trigger or to cause fear or anxiousness. And so I wonder, as we're moving towards our next break, about the tension between the fact that everyday quotidian implies a certain routine, a certain expectation, versus the fact that for a person who is coming to the world with an anxiety disorder or some other form of mental illness, the world is never quite every day. Yes. To grow calm in an evening is such a gift. And uh, to feel that sense of a presence that is enough in itself, you know, it takes some getting used to. 
anxiety is this constricting force, but also, you know, blows us out of the, those capacities to be still and present in a moment. And I, um, I, I don't want to pre- presume or say that, that I somehow have moved now fully into this <laughs> this era of equanimity and and repose anyone who knows me would say otherwise but i think the healing that comes through the sources that you've described and the ones that i'm recalling illuminates that kind of place of repose and calm and it makes it possible to be in there a while because it, it relieves us of the burden. I'll say this more personally, the burden to just make every moment, every occasion, a moment or occasion of eternal consequence. Oh my Lord. But that's that's the kind of habituation that so is so easily formed. And so I think that that journey of being relieved, not only by the therapist, their analysts, by ourselves, but also by God and just reading scripture truthfully, that God does not want us to live as emissaries of self-righteousness in the world, seeking to impose our own agendas on everything different. There's a sense of participation and gift and being still in the tabernacle and all of these kinds of images that are much more pervasive in shaping the life of faith lived in view of this God who comes to us from the faraway country of the triune God that give us the opportunity to be still and to slow down and to see that our own attempt to control all the situations through our own nervous management are themselves idolatrous constructions that we had best dispense with, both for good theological, but also for good psychic reasons. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Charles Marsh. He's a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and director of the Project on Lived Theology. Today we're talking about his recent memoir, Evangelical Anxiety. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for our listening pleasure. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Charles Marsh. He's a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and director of the Project on Lived Theology. Today we're talking about his recent book, Evangelical Anxiety, a Memoir. Well, you are a person who has spent your life in academia. I am also a person who has come in and out of academia in addition to being a radio guy and the other hats that I've worn throughout my career. But something that I'm very conscious of and was very conscious of reading your book, Evangelical Anxiety, is 
And as we said in the last segment, you're a person who is now speaking publicly about mental illness. I am speaking publicly about mental illness. But there was a period in my career during my first trajectory in the tenure track where these things began to first rear their heads, and I felt like I couldn't tell anyone. And so I really want to ask you a question about masking and what it is to know about yourself that something isn't working, but feel like you have to hide it from everyone around you. And that somehow if you were to mention it or to acknowledge it publicly, that maybe the sky would fall. And and in addition to that, I want to ask about the exacerbating effect of these kind of evangelical narratives that you've talked about through our conversation. So, but maybe let's first just start with that question of masking. What was that like for you when you were experiencing this, the first blushes of this and feeling like, maybe I can't tell anybody? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Masking and finding yourself both battered and broken by these debilitating symptoms, but also unable and unwilling to say anything to anyone because, well, there are different reasons for that, because you would be exposing your own vulnerability. You would be perhaps disappointing the other who you imagine to have idealized you in some way as a Christian. And in the experience of my first major anxiety episode and the weeks and months that followed, I wasn't even aware of wanting to protect myself from exposing or from sharing or telling another person about the torment and terror that I was experiencing. I mean, I'd been raised, of course, a kind of constitutional uh, suspicion of not only psychiatry, but psychology as a broadly conceived discipline and form of healthcare. Evangelicals were people who had been redeemed by the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelled our lives. And having the ultimate healer present 24-7, to call upon, we're too blessed to be stressed, as some might say. We were not the kind of people who needed the work of, of psychology. And moreover, the work of psychology could do things to us that could even further endanger our relationship with God. And I was then thrown back on the only explanations that I could muster of why I was battered and bruised by these unrelenting anxiety symptoms. I thought, okay, well, these must be a trial or maybe even a gift. Some of the devotional books I read, Boswell Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest, for example, really encouraged me to bear down on that thought to take the joy in my torment and to feel like only in my unmaking and my disintegration as a self, could I then be filled with God's mercy and so forth? Well, that didn't work out very well. I became deeply immersed in medieval mysticism, and I found some consolation there, and particularly with the sort of quasi-heretical Meister Eckhart and The Cloud of Unknowing, too, was a very important book for me. The only consolation 
in discovering this cloud of witnesses, this cast of Christians that were not part of my evangelical canon, who accepted suffering, who affirmed mental torment, and who sought to live into it in some way. So it was more sort of the consolation of fellow travelers than ideas and strategies of contemplative life, of ascetical life that enabled me to feel better psychologically. There's a lot to be said about consolation, but it, in any case, it was years, David, not just months, it was years before I could even recognize that I had been masking. I felt that the torment that had overwhelmed me was either something deserving, it was a gift, it, I needed to bear down deeper in the word, it, was, it needed to be ferreted out through some taking of spiritual inventory and finding the places in my life that maybe were de- deficient, that needed further nourish so that I wouldn't have these anxiety symptoms. I kept it entirely to myself, but not as a consciously masking response, rather as a response that, I mean, there's also a lot of narcissism implicit in tragically or sadly in some kinds of mental illnesses. But I really believed naively, even though I'd read some psychology, I taught Freud and others, that that I was just a singular case. That I, no one else had, I don't know if we can say the F word, but I was just effed up in ways that no one had ever been, ever. It was just me. It was just because of something about my blistered, poisoned soul that I just had to bear so low as long as I could. It's amazing I made it you know, seven or eight years, and there were times when the symptoms eased and became more manageable, but I, but I lived within this kind of ambient world of expectation, of expecting, of seeing the fearing the, the terrors, of having no understanding of them, of control over them. And I think the day one spring I was writing my doctoral dissertation talk about feeling constricted and demoralized. And a lot of the symptoms had resurfaced with a new kind of intensity. And I, not really knowing what would follow, thought, okay, I have no other recourse now but to just walk in to student mental health and say, I need help, which is what I did. I threw myself at the mercy of the University of Virginia student health and mental health. and. What was so remarkable was, first of all, getting some medication that acted on my central nervous system and actually feeling the biochemical calming as a result, which, in a, you know, which as a kind of heuristic exercise alone was helpful. Oh, I can feel this way, this kind of ratchet, this sort of this kind of overdrive that I had been living in that has not just mental, but physical expressions can be relieved. Again, beginning to talk and to slowly and with some hesitation enumerate the various symptoms, the various physical symptoms that were 
part of my anxiety disorder. And to see that, well, those fit into a, a very familiar pattern. And that moreover, these symptoms are the result of other ideas, other, other states of affairs. These symptoms have explanations. These symptoms have causes. We can read them as, a, as you read a book. And I, the idea that these symptoms could, could be in, encountered and looked at as little text, it's just so, so extraordinarily helpful because then they, they, they opened on to other more perhaps fundamental or more determinative experiences and they became interlinked in narrative form. And then it wasn't, first of all, the awareness that, oh, I've been wearing this mask for seven or eight years, but it was the sort of sadness and the sadness that you feel when you look back on yourself with love. Maybe you see yourself as a, a photograph of yourself as a child in a moment you know was one of awkwardness or fear. And you just want to tell that person, hey, you're going to be okay. I can see, I can recognize in your eyes that glint of terror. But we're going to get through this and we're going to figure this out. And you're going to be okay. And it was more of a sense of that kind of sadness that I think is born of, a, of compassion. And I know it, to some religious traditions, it may sound incomprehensible. I know when I was trying to describe to my one of an analyst I saw in Baltimore, who was an observant Jew, when I tried to describe to him the evangelical ritual of breaking the will of the child, he took a step back and he said, okay, you know, from the kind of more descriptive, uh, unscripted flow, he said, hey, Charles, I'm just going to need you to explain that to me <laughs> because I do not understand this idea. So to, to some, it seems incomprehensible that you and I might find it a great achievement and a grace to be able to look at ourselves with compassion and to think of ourselves with compassionately and to love ourselves. So looking back on that, it was masking of a grand sword. Just the thing, I just wish that we churches not just allowed us, but required us to be unmasked. I think it would completely re-revolutionize our understanding of life with God. And then we may say, as Bonhoeffer said in prison when he was confessing to Eberhard that he could no longer read the New Testament, that he was only reading the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and had come to this sort of great and joyous realization that God not only called you know, sinners and fornicators and murderers and thieves to accomplish his purposes, but there was also a kind of glory in their sinfulness. <laughs> yes, that's, that should be the way that our churches, there's going to be a church, a place, uh, a, a, a space of worship beyond the kind of the sort of the wasteland of post-ecclesial, post-Christian America, it's going to have to be places that not just accept, but embrace and affirm us in our deepest brokenness.
It strikes me that writing a book like this, your book Evangelical Anxiety, is an act of trust. So you're handing this to the reader and you're saying, these vignettes are part of my story and I want you to bear this story with me. But it's also, it strikes me, an act of hope that you are putting it into the world in the hope that there will be some kind of response. And as a way of moving towards the end of our conversation, I'm wondering, as you are now looking back on the book having been released, is it meeting your hopes? Is this act of trust creating what you hoped would happen in the world? Or is there still more that you hope will come? I did write the book with that hope. David, it's a chastened hope. I mean, it's a hope that's at least with attention to the evangelical culture that nurtured me and nourished me as a child and young man is held with realism, if not some skepticism. So I wrote the book with a commitment, or with the hope, to try to go as far as I could in understanding and excavating the source of my evangelical anxiety, despite how revelatory or intimate or humiliating or shameful as they might be, in doing that, I'm aware that that's not the way Christians, by and large, write autobiography. In addition to the Bible, I should have said as a child, I did read a lot of missionary autobiographies or autobiographies by some of the great evangelical saints like David Wilkerson, you know, crossing the switchblade, border of Yale. I mean, anytime men of God did great things and wrote stories about them, or people wrote stories, biographies about them, I these books found their way into my bedroom, into my library. But even in recent years, with only a few exceptions, do evangelicals seem willing to look at issues of race and sexuality and mental health. Anne Heche, the actress, died sadly just yesterday. Her sister was a very talented writer who has sadly been left out of all the obituaries that I've read, named Susan Bergman. Susan Bergman taught at Wheaton College as an adjunct professor during the years when she was writing a memoir that, in my mind, represents one of the most beautiful, daring, heartbreaking, and courageous memoirs that, that if not the, the most of the, any evangelical has written, it's also beautifully written. And she was writing a novel in, in the years after the memoir was published and, and, and died of cancer. But when the memoir came out, it's entitled Anonymity. It's a memoir of her life of her father, who was an evangelical music minister, who was also living a double life as a gay man in New York City in the 70s and 80s. And he was one of the first casualties of the AIDS epidemic. It's one in which she's looking at her father's duplicity and how and the repercussions of his duplicity on her family. But in the course of her own writing, she inevitably and inescapably was led to confront her own duplicity. 
the power and the courage and the honesty of Susan Bergman's memoir. Maybe it's creating a, a larger space within which these inescapable and essential conversations need to happen. The hope I have is that I've given voice to my own story in a way that encourages others to give voice to theirs. Well, Charles Marsh, I want to say, as a reader of your book, I did feel encouraged. I did feel as if I was being invited in, not to a kind of rehearsal of sadness or rehearsal of spectacle, but rather into a flow of a life that is trying to grapple with some aspects of the unknown and build back towards something better in hope. And so I'm so grateful that you took the time to put these words on paper, to reflect on your experiences, and to shepherd these anxieties in the way that you have. But I'm especially grateful that you took the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. David, it's been a pleasure, and I thank you for your attention to the book in such detail and care, and for the gift of being able to spend a a little longer crafting an answer than I've been accustomed to recently on the book tour. Thank you very much. We've been speaking today with Charles Marsh. He's a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and director of the Project on Lived Theology. He's the author of many books, including God's Long Summer and his biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Strange Glory. Today, we've been discussing his recent book, Evangelical Anxiety, a Memoir. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.